0: You guys, we did it. We made it through another year. 2024 is upon us. If you've been listening to this show, you know what that means. It's a presidential election year. We're going to be covering the ins and outs of the race a lot on this show in the months ahead. But I wanted to take some time today to lay out some of the stakes. Because beyond poll numbers and campaign ads and debates, in the end, what matters most is what will happen if X candidate is elected. The Republican frontrunner, former President Donald Trump, has been clear about what he plans to do with a potential second term. And many have said a lot of those plans sound pretty authoritarian.
1: We pledge to you that we will root out the communists. Marxists, fascists, and the radical left thugs that live like vermin within the confines of our country. If I happen to be president and I see somebody who's doing well and beating me very badly, I say, go down and indict them. We love this guy. He says, you're not gonna be a dictator, are you? I said, no, 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 other than day one. We're closing the border, and we're drilling, drilling, drilling. After that, I'm not a dictator, that, that, That sounds to me
0: like you're going back to the policies when you were president. And there's always this debate about the former president. Should we take him seriously, but not literally? Or should everything he says be considered an explicit promise? So today, we're gonna to do something a little different. Because my colleague, Audie Cornish, recently explored this very topic on her extremely good podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. She talked to CNN's Kristen Holmes, who covers Trump full-time, And I think it's a really important conversation as caucuses and primaries begin in just a few weeks. So we're going to let you hear all of it. From CNN, this is one thing. I'm David Ryan.
2: Test, test, test. Here we are. What do you do here? How long have you been here? I started as an intern a decade ago. You're one of those. Yeah.
3: You got to talk.
2: I know. I it was I've been here for a long time. So I was in New York. I was Piers Morgan's intern. I know. We really have to talk. Okay, (laughs) we're bringing you back.
3: We're bringing you back. All right. Here's our introduction. It sounds like this. From CNN Audio, I'm Audie Cornish. This is The Assignment. What would a second term look like under Donald J. Trump? What is he saying on the campaign trail about what he would do, what some of his policies would look like?
1: On day one, I will terminate every open borders policy of the Biden administration. And we will begin the largest domestic deportation operation in American history.
3: Well, he is, of course, out there giving rallies, talking to voters. And we're going to talk to CNN's correspondent, Kristen Holmes because she just went to a rally in Texas, and she's been reporting on Donald Trump's plans. Kristen, welcome to The Assignment. Thank you for having me. So there's this thing that all pundits say. I'm going to say it so we can get it out of the way. The press takes Donald Trump literally, but not seriously. His supporters take him seriously, but not literally. Yes. So this first appeared in The Atlantic. Then Peter Thiel said it somewhere at the National Press Club. And now it's like, Gospel. It's gospel. That's the right word. Mm-hmm. It's gospel. What does it mean to you?
2: It means that when he says things that alarm the press or that we take very seriously, it doesn't matter to his supporters because they believe he just speaks off the cuff, that he is just kind of talking, that they don't take what he says seriously necessarily. Whereas um, we're
3: very literal— Right, but maybe don't take it as seriously as we should, or at least I would say in the 2016 period, right? He'd say something and the attitude was a little like,
2: well, that what's happening here, this guy? Right, so it was kind of like, oh my gosh, that's crazy. No one could possibly think that this man would be elected president. That right. was really the not taking it seriously. Yeah.
3: Or no one would believe this man would not take seriously losing a campaign.
2: Yes, exactly. And Spoiler alert. Yes. <laughs> so I think that what we do is we take what he says and we think, wow, we need to parse every single word. His supporters think, oh, he's just talking. But he does support me, and they also back him. And that's where it becomes taking seriously. And they also seriously. believe
3: in the heart of what he's saying, right? Yes. Like, they will believe the heart of securing the border. Yes. It's important. Please do it. Someone's taking it seriously, and someone is speaking frankly about how to take it seriously.
2: And it's not just the border. It's that they believe that he is a fighter and that he is fighting for them. And so whatever it is that he's saying, the bluster, or the really inappropriate remarks, even, I mean, recently he was still attacking Paul Pelosi. And
1: we'll stand up to crazy Nancy Pelosi who ruined San Francisco. How's her husband doing, by the way? Anybody know?
2: Those things to them are just Donald Trump being Donald Trump. Whereas we think, wow, he's attacking somebody who was attacked in their home. That's a huge deal. Obviously, also, at the time, the speaker's husband. That's not something that his supporters are dwelling on. But what I hear
3: in your voice is what I hear in a lot of reporters, which is a little bit of a lessons learned from the last couple of years. How should we approach reporting on him?
2: Yeah. And look, it's still difficult. It's always going to be difficult. I had a girlfriend of mine, Paula Reed, who works here, and she said something really interesting to me that I think about a lot. It's very easy for people who left journalism to criticize the way that journalists cover Donald Trump. But what Paula said was shouldn't they be so lucky that they didn't have to figure out how to navigate this field? And I think that's still true today. I do think that one of the really important lessons that we've learned is that this man could be president again. And I think that in 2016, his campaign was not taken seriously. It was so outrageous. He was so outrageous. People thought there's no way that this guy could win. And I don't think that's the case anymore. Yeah, very much across. But even still, sometimes I hear people say, well, that's not going to happen. As we've seen, it could happen.
3: So I want to talk about one of his favorite issues, which is immigration. Um, First, I want to play a little clip of that rally of him in Texas just to get a sense of how he's talking.
1: Border patrol and ICE. We can't ever forget ICE. ICE goes out there and they uh, they meet the enemy. They have a lot of enemies out and a lot of people that shouldn't be in our country. But they go out and they see these people and these gangs of thugs and they go right in there and they start swinging because there's not a lot of talking. There's a lot of swinging, but not a lot of talking. Decode.
2: So actually what he's trying to do with immigration is. More so than what we even saw in 2016. What he's saying here is just, you know, that they're going out and they're meeting migrants at the border and they're fighting the good fight. And that's one of the ways he talks. And also he always is going to have a very vocal support for law enforcement. He believes that law enforcement supports him back. So Border Patrol, ICE, all of that is something that's very important to him. So hard line right there. Um, And that's his way of supporting them. But I do think that we should talk about what he's not just saying, but what his team is doing when it comes to immigration. Because yes, we are hearing him say that if he was reelected, they would have the largest deportation ever. That's not just rhetoric. And I think that's where we get to this whole taking someone seriously and literally. In 2016, a lot of it was rhetoric because he didn't have any plans in place. He didn't know how the federal government worked. He didn't have a network. That's very different this time around. So what we know about Donald Trump's immigration plan moving forward is that if he were to be reelected to a second term, he wants to expand all of those hardline immigration policies. So
3: just reminding people of some of them, one would have been um, the family separation program, which a lot of reporting has been done about how that came to be through his many appointees and the bureaucracy a policy that was supposed to deter migration in effect by making the the consequence splitting up your family. Right.
2: That was one of them. Yes. So more of that. More of that. Um, And actually taking it to a whole nother level, which would be the building of large scale detention camps to round up migrants, including people who have lived here in the country uh, for years. And hold them in detention camps until they're deported to their country.
3: So people who have ostensibly violated the anyone terms who was of their here stay.
2: right. And anyone who was possibly here illegally in the first place. So we don't know, but it, it would be that they're an illegal or undocumented immigrant, even if they've been here for years, they would be rounded up, put into detention camps that would be built, and then held there until they would be deported.
3: Now, none of this is hidden, so is this like when you go to the Trump for president website and click on policy or how are you getting a sense of what's going on?
2: Well, so this was told me by sources when I asked them, but this is within the campaign. So sources within the campaign telling me that this is what they are laying out. Now, the mass deportation is something he has said over and over again. But when you actually ask them, what does that look like? And the other thing I want to point out, because this is not just with immigration, this goes across the board um, for all of his 2025 plans. They are looking for workarounds so that they won't have to go through the traditional measures to get this done, meaning they won't have to talk to Congress. Or if there are legal pushbacks, they are preparing now before he's even the Republican nominee for those kind of legal cases, looking at the Constitution, looking at what exactly this will look like or what that legal pushback could be and preparing in advance.
3: I think one of the things that uh, maybe we can think about now is anybody who sort of signs on to a Trump second term to work in it is committed in a way that maybe even in the first term – the wasn't the
2: same. Oh, absolutely. No, th- I mean, that didn't exist. I mean, they Donald Trump did not have a network to pull from when he won in 2016. Right. So he was taking from past
3: administrations, wings the of RNC, the Republican Party exactly. that maybe didn't quite go along with it, and another club of people I called the Patriots, who have like written a bunch of memoirs right. since that <laughs> right. were like, I didn't believe in any of this, but I thought I was protecting our country by right. being in the administration. And you I say just rolled three your years, eyes. Yeah, so. exactly. <laughs> Um, but that's important because right. it means that now the people who sign on are loyalists and want to figure out the workarounds yeah. and want to figure out getting around the deep state, yes. which they're concerned about, figuring out how to get around any rules and regulations in the federal government bureaucracy that would put curbs on the power of the yes. executive. Yes, absolutely. Am I saying that correctly?
2: Yes, I think that one of the things that we take for granted is this saying of the deep state, right? It is something Donald Trump has been saying forever and, and it, we've always equated it with people who are against Donald Trump. Or just people who work for the government. In, for the government. Right, and follow government yeah. regulations and aren't loyalists or, or don't follow the person in power. But I think someone who very deeply believes in obliterating the deep state, explain to me what exactly they mean by this. And there's actually kind of a technical, constitutional part of this. The belief is that there are a bunch of government agencies that have just traditionally operated independently of the executive branch. However... Can you give an example of at least one? Department of Justice is one of them. Uh, Kind of important. Right. Technically, it still is an arm of the executive branch. Merrick Garland was appointed by Biden. The attorney general always is. But with investigations, the... Tradition is for them to be somewhat independent. That is not something that these constitutionalists who believe in obliterating the deep state believe should be the case.
3: And they've also now had this experience um, learning through the Mueller report, through these various investigations, that there are ways that lawyers within the Justice Department can say, hey, that's not constitutional. Hey, Let us not do that. Yes. And they consider those people to be obstacles.
2: Yes. So, what they would like to do, and this they what they would like to do, and let me be clear like, I've spoken to a number of legal analysts who think that this is possible just because this is the way the Constitution is laid out. They want to say no more of this tradition. We're going to operate exactly the way that the Constitution lies out, which is that the Department of Justice falls under the executive entirely and is controlled by the executive, which would obviously give Donald Trump the power to use the Department of Justice how he sees fit, and that includes taking revenge on people who he believes have wronged him or just his critics in general.
3: I'm speaking with CNN's Kristen Holmes. We'll be back after this break. I'm Audie Cornish. We're talking here with CNN's Kristen Holmes about the policy plans for a second Donald Trump term. I want to come back to something you were talking about because one of the articles had a headline of using the Justice Department for revenge. So let's follow up on that. A typical quote
1: I will appoint, appoint a real special prosecutor. To go after the most corrupt president in the history of the United States of America, Joe Biden, the entire Biden crime family, and all others involved with the destruction of our elections, borders, and our country itself. These are corrupt people. These people are destroying America, and they're going to pay a price for it.
3: What does this actually mean?
2: This idea is, again, this goes back to this abolishment of the deep state, moving the Department of Justice underneath the executive branch and essentially asserting full control. The way it was written in the Constitution is that the Department of Justice is a part of the executive branch. However, we have operated for decades that there's an independent factor of it, particularly when it comes to investigations. But again, things that are tradition—
3: are not law exactly and I think that was a big again one more lesson for me coming out of the Trump years there were lots of boundaries that were tested
2: and surprise surprise everyone they weren't laws exactly and that that has been a continual learning curve and that was something that when I was reading into how exactly this would work I was surprised by and when I spoke to legal experts about it they said it might be hard for any kind of legal pushback sure lawsuits will be filed But at the end of the day, how they'll turn out is really unknown because, again, we're talking about norms and traditions versus actual laws written into the Constitution or actual laws in general. You've
3: also been reporting on an outside group called Project 2025. Who are they? What do they aim to do?
2: So... uh, Project 2025 is a umbrella organization. It's run by the Heritage Foundation, a conservative think tank, and it's taken in several of the other conservative groups and is trying to essentially create a blueprint for the next Republican nominee or next Republican president. And
3: this is important for people to understand when you're a political reporter, there's the candidate, but then there's like a whole constellation of consultants,
2: think tanks. And this one's wild because there are hundreds of people involved and this is a multi-million dollar effort and it's likely the largest that we've ever seen. And again, this is trying to prepare for a potential Republican president. So that's who can we nominate for things? Yes, it's a database of Trump loyalists, uh, loyalists in general. So so just one thing I want to make clear. They say that they are not candidate-specific. However, a lot of the people who are running the organization— our former Trump appointees uh, worked for the administration. A lot of Trump's still very close allies who are lawyers and policymakers who want to put forward his agenda and execute his agenda are also working for this group under various uh, groups.
3: Which means they're taking the lessons they learned from going up against the government bureaucracy, being told no, being challenged, and they are preparing to um, be more effective the next time around?
2: Yes. And so one of the things as we talked about in 2016 Donald Trump did not have a government infrastructure. That I mean we saw that his family was working in the White House. I mean he did not have anyone to pull from. One of the things Project 2025 has done is that they have started what they call a conservative LinkedIn. And they essentially go through profiles of people who apply and put them into this if they believe they fit a certain loyalist category they are asked questions now i was told there is no like loyalty test at this point but that they do have a red flag system so if there is something that they said in one of their answers that's something that would be flagged to a potential employer to look through that they go through social media as well what kinds of things So one thing that was described to me was if somebody was uh, opposed to or spoke out actively against January 6th against the people who stormed the Capitol on January 6th. Red flag. Yes, possibly. conservative LinkedIn. I was not told that was a red flag. I okay. was told that would be something they would be looking out for. Orange flag. Yes. <laughs> so I was told, I was told that would be a eye-opener, something to watch out for. My eyes are open. And that look, this all is in line with Donald Trump, right? Again, while they're saying that they're candidate agnostic... This is in line with what Donald Trump believes and what he wants. Um, So you have that part of it. Then you also have the policy pillars, and they have taken these Trump loyalists from across the government, from various, you know, polls in Washington, and they are writing policy and executive orders that could be signed on day one.
3: So one example is a purge of civil servants. Yes. And again, it probably seems like we're harping on this, but any time there is any kind of policy, it gets executed by people. Right. A person in an office somewhere in D.C. has to start doing it, and that affects you at home. So can they actually purge civil servants, like all at once?
2: Probably not all at once, uh, but that's what they would like to do. And again, you know, it kind of- Executive order? Yes, so he did this with an executive order. Okay. So this this would go back to what we saw when he was in in office with Schedule F, where he essentially takes away the protections that tens of thousands of government employees have and makes it easier to fire them. Because
3: there are, which on its surface doesn't sound bad, right? Like, hey, if you're not good at your job in any in the private sector, you can get fired.
2: Well, and that, and also there is this component of okay, well. I was elected president. I should have people who work for me in the government who support my ideals, right? But a lot of these people are backstops, and they've been in the government for decades. And you would essentially take them out and replace them with people who were just loyal to you. Maybe not even necessarily to your cause. Yeah. I think I remember
3: hearing a lot of complaints about this in the sort of science-based agencies.
2: Yes. Yes, People leaving,
3: people just freaked out, frankly. It was really at odds. A
2: lot of people are on edge, particularly, again, there is a reason that these people have protections because they don't want anytime someone new comes in to say, you know, you're not doing what I want. You have to be fired. That's why there are people there who are technically considered apolitical. They're civil servants. They're not considered political appointees. And they're supposed to have protections. But remember, in Trump's first administration, he blamed some of these career government employees as reasons that some of his policies didn't get through. So he wants to completely eradicate that.
3: We've talked about immigration. We've talked about the deep state. These are sort of hot-button favorites, I think, for Trump And for his constellation of supporters, is there any policy or any phrase that you've heard in these rallies that you haven't really talked about publicly yet because it's not as fancy as these other ones that you always think, you know, people should
2: know this is a real executable policy? So I don't actually know how much this is real and executable because so much of law enforcement is broken down between federal and state and local. But he does want to implement a sweeping reform of law enforcement in a way that, you know, civil rights organizations have pushed back on some of the tactics that he wants to implement, like stop and frisk. He wants to make it mandatory for law enforcement agencies to use stop and frisk or else they won't get Department of Justice funding or at least some Department of Justice funding. So he says this. Yeah.
1: I will insist that local jurisdictions return to proven common sense policing measures such as stop and frisk. Very simple. You stop them and you frisk them.
2: Strictly, there could be a lot of problems with that. How? given the fact that there are uh, civil rights organizations have pushed back on stop-and-frisk across the board because they believe it unfairly targets minorities. it's you know been taken out of a lot of law enforcement agencies, even though it is technically still legal. The other part of this is that it sounds like, in his immigration policy, he wants to use law enforcement as a way to further his agenda. So, for example, it would be virtually impossible given the current level of Border Patrol agents and ICE agents, to round up all of the undocumented migrants in the country. So what their plan would include is essentially tapping local and federal law enforcement to help them with this plan, to Again, execute Again, tied this.
3: to grants and federal funding, or?
2: There's no real answer on that part, but this is one of the things that, you know, to me always stands out is, again, this like sweeping reform of law enforcement. And the other part of that is that he has suggested on multiple occasions that he would put the National Guard into cities that were dealing with high levels of crime like Chicago.
3: So I asked chat GPT, (laughs) what laws would prevent a U.S. president from rounding up all undocumented residents, housing them in camps and enacting mass deportations? And ChatGBT, I'm just going to show you, listed one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight different issues, obstacles, constitutional protections, including the fourth, fifth and eighth amendments, Mm -hmm. separation of powers, immigration laws in general, judicial review. It's even got public opinion and backlash on here and law enforcement refusal that there just may be agencies that say we're not going to do it, that aren't going to do it. Um, What is it about how he is preparing for his second term that makes you think this list is not as firm as uh, the collective, air quotes, wisdom of the Internet that fuels AI (laughs) thinks it
2: is? So – This goes back to Project 2025 and this group of policymakers and lawyers that are very different from what Trump had in 2016. There are people who fundamentally want to see his policies executed. And it's not just crackpot lawyers like we've seen in the past. A lot of them are constitutional experts. They are people who have researched this for years, and these are policies that they have wanted implemented for years. They are trying to come up with the legal arguments for that, The ways around Congress for that, which would be trying to get funding from one area of the executive to another. We saw Trump did this when he was in office. He moved funds from the Pentagon to help build the border wall. They are looking for the loopholes now. And they have quite a bit of time to try and figure them out. Now, I do want to be clear. All of this is going to face backlash. There are going to be multiple lawsuits filed, diplomatic backlash. I mean, there is all over the map here. There's going to be a lot of pushback.
3: But you're saying the legal framework for getting these things to survive those challenges will be It's already being
2: made. Yeah. It's being built right now.
3: How do you balance kind of the public's need to know about this Versus kind of adding to a narrative of fear or, you know what I mean, like this chicken littleism, which I think none of us were good at a few years ago.
2: It is a balance. I think that one of the most important things to do, and my job is, is to put out exactly what it is that he is saying that he is going to do.
3: And putting policy to to the rhetoric yeah
2: i think that the way to cover donald trump is that he, this is a person who is leading the gop primary field you have to cover him the people who say that you can ignore him or he'll go away i don't know where they've been for the past eight years Do you still hear that oh yeah that we should be ignoring him and not putting forward what he says I personally believe that that is a disservice to the country because the country should know exactly where Donald Trump stands, this man who is the right now front runner for the GOP nomination, who might face off against President Joe Biden again, where he stands on each of these policies and what a term in 2025 would look like. And that's my job. It's not anything else. It's to put forward exactly what he himself is saying and make sure that people understand that when they go to the ballot box.
3: Kristen Holmes is a CNN national correspondent. I want to thank you so much for coming here and sharing your reporting and decoding some of this for us that I hadn't heard a good deal of it. So I really appreciate it.
2: Thank you. This is fun.
3: And we'll come find you on the campaign trail next year. I'll stalk you there. (laughs)
0: That was Audie Cornish speaking to CNN's Kristen Holmes. Again, Audie's podcast is The Assignment with Audie Cornish. You can find it wherever you listen. We'll also leave a link in our show notes. One Thing is a production of CNN Audio. This episode was produced by Paula Ortiz and me, David Rind. Our senior producer is Fez Jamil. Our supervising producer is Greg Peppers. Matt Dempsey is our production manager. Dan DiZula is our technical director, and Steve Liktai is the executive producer of CNN Audio. We get support from Healy Thomas, Alex Manissari, Robert Mathers, John Deonora, Lenny Steinhardt, Jameis Andres, Nicole Pessarou, and Lisa Namoro. Special thanks to Katie Hinman. We'll be back next week with another episode. Happy New Year, everyone. Talk to you later.